A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is a story of the 1916 Rising. I say a story and not the story because, as all listeners know, numerous sides to every historical tale exist and numerous angles exist on every side. The story which I want to present to you is not a popular version of 1916. It's not a popular version of the motives and ideals of those involved with the Rising, and it is certainly not a popular version of its impact, consequences, or necessity. Nonetheless, it is a story which you need to hear, and it is a story which still reverberates throughout Irish history and if you believe some scholars' world history to this day. In many ways it can be a complicated story, especially if you are from outside of Ireland and are not familiar with the tale that we as Irish citizens are made familiar with on a regular basis. Within the story of 1916 are a morass of characters, contradictions, casualties and chaos, as Dublin is set alight and Ireland follows suit. Curiously, It would only be the British act of executing the rebels of 1916 that would endear those people to the Irish public as martyrs. In other words, only after the events of the Rising would the rebels be viewed as the heroes they are more popularly seen as now. Before the British executed the rebels, they were chastised and abused by an Irish public who had fathers, sons and uncles etc. fighting the Germans abroad. To these average Irish citizens, the actions of this select extremist minority, within a minority, was seen as a stab in the back of the most reprehensible order. Yet over the space of a fortnight, this consensus changed. I want to unravel this consensus, and it isn't as wide a consensus as you might think. Above all, I want to delve into the 1916 story and examine it with my own style, and present Irish history within the proper context, with the explanations of its characters, that it so badly needs, so that you can judge for yourself whether 1916 was right, or whether it has been the source of every problem in Ireland since. If that sounds like something you would be interested in, if this sounds like your kind of experience, then I would like to say, welcome to the miniseries. When Diplomacy Fails presents 1916 A special centenary miniseries exploring the context, characters and controversies of the most significant act in Ireland's modern history. The 1916 Rising
We are a little country, and you a huge country have persistently beaten us. We are a poor country, and you, the richest country in the world, have persistently robbed us. This is the historical fact, and whatever national or political necessities are opposed in reply, it is true that you have never given Ireland any reason to love you, and you cannot claim her affection without hypocrisy or stupidity. No nation has forgiven its enemies, as we have forgiven you. Time and time, down the miserable generations, the continuity of our forgiveness only equalled by the continuity of your ill-treatment. Easter Rising Eyewitness, James Stevens Author of Insurrection in Dublin, 1916 I am lost in wonder at the mystery of patriotism. Why should I care what Ireland is now when I do not live in it, or, or what may become of Ireland when I am dead? Yet I do, with a passion of love and pity and rage. Irish literary scholar Stephen McKenna, in his journal, 1907 The historian can really be on an equal footing only with the history of his own country. He understands almost instinctively its twists and turns, its complexities, its originalities and its weaknesses. French historian Fernand Braudel, writing in History of France, 1988. The darkest periods of history are not always the least attractive, the obscure is not necessarily the uninteresting, and the investigator is unfortunate who, delving into the dead past, is not occasionally rewarded by the discovery of the secret springs of some long-famous but only half-understood event. Historian C. Lytton Falconer, writing in Essays Relating to Ireland, 1909. History would be an excellent thing, if only it were true. Leo Tolstoy If you are not aware, a little background is probably necessary before we go any further. This year in Ireland is the 100th anniversary of the 1916 Rising, an event in Ireland's national history which is laden with rhetoric, controversy and in some cases even-handed discussion today. In the course of the Rising, Irish nationalists on the extreme end of the spectrum proclaimed a republic from the steps of Dublin's General Post Office and seized key positions of Dublin City over Easter week from Monday the 24th to about Sunday afternoon on the 29th of April, 1916. In that space of time, the rebels shot from buildings and held them from the British, who were gradually reinforced until the surrender was forced upon the rebels. The rebels had announced that a republic had been proclaimed in Ireland, which was both free from British authority and allied to our gallant allies fighting in Europe. A reference to the Germans, which Britain had been in a state of war with for almost two full years. In the aftermath, seeing the rising as a treasonous event since the British Empire was already at war with the Central Powers at this stage, the main ringleaders of the rising were executed in early May 1916. The executions turned the ringleaders into martyrs, and caused Irish attitudes to switch from wholly hostile to largely sympathetic with the rebels who by then were being lionised as heroes. In the years that followed, it became clear that the Home Rule movement would not be enough to satisfy the appetites of the now radicalised Irish public transformed by 1916's events and determined to make the British answer for its past. Sinn Féin, the political movement founded years before the Rising and having largely nothing to do with it, 
but confusingly, soon becoming associated with its events nonetheless, enjoyed an upsurge of popularity and overtook the Irish Parliamentary Party as the party of the Irish voter. Sinn Féin candidates made the decision to abstain from taking their seats in Westminster in London, and instead as a form of protest, sat in a parliament to be established in Dublin. In early January 1919, from the seat of this parliament, an independent Ireland was proclaimed, and the first shots of Ireland's volunteer force, now deemed the Irish Republican Army or IRA, rang out later that day, signalling that the Irish War of Independence had begun. By its end, in mid-1921, with both sides exhausted from the war, a peace was negotiated which fell far short of what many wanted. The result of the Anglo-Irish War had been the Anglo-Irish Treaty, which would partition Ireland and continue to hold Ireland within the United Kingdom of Great Britain as a Dominion state. Those Republicans, embittered by this compromise, elected to continue on the fight in anger against the new British-approved government in Ireland, now called the Irish Free State, far short of the Irish Republic that they had clamoured for. This new version of Sinn Féin that fought against the Irish Free State now fought a war from 1922 to 1923 until, after months of bitter, wasteful fighting, a truce was organised, and years of warfare in Ireland finally came to an end. Ireland thus embarked upon its curious road to independence in late 1923, much transformed from its state of affairs in 1913, before the Rising had changed so much what it meant to be Irish and live in the Irish state. This is of course a very rough outline of Irish history and don't worry, we will explain its trajectory in more detail as the characters, issues and consequences of what stems from and what came before the 1916 Rising are examined in this mini-series. For the sake of an introduction to what's in store in this mini-series though, I feel it sets us up well for the future. If you search YouTube for a documentary about the 1916 Rising, you may be surprised to find a great number are present which give you a detailed analysis on what occurred. Some are very balanced, others lean for a broad anti-British or anti-everything Irish perspective. As usual with YouTube though, the one thing to behold is the comments below the documentary. I am somewhat ashamed to say it did not take me long to become engaged in a keyboard-style battle with my fellow man over the inaccuracies and myths of the Rising. Simply put, it was a case of both of our opposite opinions colliding. He believed that the Rising was a necessary act and that the individuals who conducted it were honourable and heroic because of what they did. I insisted that the 1916 Rising, on the other hand, was an unnecessary, wasteful event which has since become clouded in a rhetoric that has only succeeded in hiding the true nuances of its causes, courses and consequences. It is this point of view of mine which I wish to communicate to you guys in this mini-series. It is probably not the perspective you expect from a young Irishman raised on a healthy diet of one-sided historical narratives within a cautiously anti-British atmosphere. Nonetheless, it is my point of view, and I feel like it is a story worthy of your time. My major gripe about the way the 1916 Rising is portrayed nowadays and the way people view it 
revolves around the fact that the loss of life, that human life in general, is viewed as distinctively less important than the actual founding myth which the Easter Rising created. What I mean by that is, the Rising killed people. It killed children and wounded thousands. It destroyed lives in an instant and bore witness to terrible atrocities, as innocent men and women, who never had any choice or say in the matter, were caught in the crossfire. I believe it wasn't right for these people to die, and I believe that we as human beings do them a disservice if we present the Rising as a glorious, heroic event and forget their names, lives and memories. Especially when you consider the fact that people do know the names of at least most of the signatories of the Proclamation of the Irish Republic, which was read out on Easter Monday, the 24th of April, 1916, and which served as the death warrant for those seven men who did make the decision to sign it. These men, James Connolly, Podrick Pierce, Thomas McDonough, Thomas Clark, Sean McDermott, Eamon Kiant, and Joseph Plunkett, all made the decision to die. Dying is what they expected and in some cases wished for. But the citizens of Dublin, among others, who their insurrection, caught and killed by whatever means, did not have that choice, and their names are mostly lost to history, and to a disinterested public more concerned with the vibrant, exciting lives of Ireland's martyrs. To me, such a state of events is not just wrong in a moral sense, but it's bad history. It has often been said that nations need great patriotic events to look back to in reverence for the sake of national unity and pride. Not only would I take issue with that statement, but I also don't buy this as an excuse for the Rising, nor do I believe that the Rising was even worth the damage and suffering it caused. Taken alone, it was a destructive, reckless, and in my opinion incredibly immoral and unfair act, taken by a minority of a minority within a minority. However, if we look at it from the point of view of other subsequent events in Irish history, as many Irish historians have done since, it is relatively easy to see the linkage between the Rising and the Irish War of Independence and the Irish Civil War and even the so-called Troubles in Northern Ireland in the late 1960s to the end of the century, really. Furthermore, it engendered the prevalence of what's called physical force republicanism in Ireland, which in turn made it acceptable within the island of Ireland to use violence to achieve one's means once the political process became too slow or frustrating to invest in. This flew in the face, as we'll discover, of Ireland's rich history in the years before of using the political means at their disposal, limited as they were, to peacefully achieve their ends. It gave subsequent terrorist groups in Northern Ireland, on both sides of the divide, grounds for a self-proclaimed mandate to act and use violence to achieve their ends in the latter half of the 20th century, based on the fact that it had first been proclaimed in the 1916 Rising, and so it must be true. It should go without saying that Irish history is personal for me, insofar as it is the history of my homeland. But Irish history is different in other ways to the history of other states. Despite the fact that all this happened 100 years ago now, its impact on how Irish people see themselves, how we are governed, especially in the case of our political parties, and the more obvious fact that Ireland as it is known as a political entity today excludes the north of the island. 
All of these issues mean that the Rising remains relevant, and until we as a people can move past its legacy and create our own, it always will. Recently in Ireland, we saw the commemoration of the 1916 centenary. This despite the fact, of course, that the Rising did not occur until the 24th of April, 1916. The commemorations were done on Easter week, in line with the fact that 100 years earlier, the rebels had chosen the same festival because of its symbolic significance, since as a Christian festival it celebrates the rising of Christ from the dead. Ideologues and romanticists like Patrick Pearce and others within the Supreme Council of the Irish Republican Brotherhood, the organisation most responsible for the rising but not the only one, chose the date of Easter because they believed it would represent the rising of Irish independence from the dead, and by dead they meant subjugated to Britain. Irish history in the minds of those that launched the rising had seen an unbroken trend of patriotic men and women rising up in the name of Irish independence against the British yoke. It was time, they believed, for such a resurrection of Irish nationhood to begin again. As a result of their actions, ever since 1916, the Rising has seen itself commemorated on Easter, whether in 1966 for the 50th anniversary or this year for the centenary. Thus in Ireland the centenary of the Rising has already been commemorated, despite the fact that historically it only happened 100 years ago now. What this means for me is that I was able to see how the Irish government and people decided to commemorate the Rising before I had to present my own views up. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. To you guys. In short, I was able to judge what people of every generation thought of the Rising, since virtually everyone was talking about it this year, and I was able to witness the response made by Irish politicians across the spectrum. By and large, you will probably not be too surprised to learn, I didn't like what I saw. Commemorating 1916 became somewhat awkward for the Irish government, once the troubles in Northern Ireland flared up in the late 1960s. Significantly just after the 1966-50th anniversary of the Rising. The Troubles saw Republican elements on one side, represented by the Provisional Irish Republican Army or 
IRA versus the loyalist paramilitary organisations on the other side with countless moderate politicians, civilians and British soldiers caught in between. The awkwardness of celebrating or even commemorating the anniversary of the 1916 Rising came from the fact that this newly emerged Irish Republican Army claimed its legitimacy from both the original IRA that fought in the Irish War of Independence, which followed the Rising and led to the foundation of the modern Irish state, and from the actions taken by the rebels in 1916, who proclaimed the 32-county Irish Republic. Once the troubles erupted then, the issue in the south of Ireland in the Republic became one of how to mark the significance of the Rising without emphasising too much the actual historical facts. It was just easier that way, rather than confronting the uncomfortable truth that the terror organisations of Northern Ireland acted with no more of a mandate than the individuals of 1916. Those that sought to argue this latter point and tear down at the same time the glorious edifice of the Rising in response to what was happening around them in the late 1960s and early 70s were labelled revisionist historians. These were individuals that sought to investigate what really happened in 1916, what Ireland was like before the Rising and what the people that launched that Rising actually stood for. What the revisionists unearthed was an almost incredible counter-argument to the mainstream patriotic version of Irish history that had for 50 years been expressed, most notably during the 50th anniversary commemorations of the Rising in 1966, when a military-style celebration of all that had occurred in Ireland's name took place. Some viewed those events as bad in taste even then, but the eruption of the Troubles in Northern Ireland gave Irish historians an excuse to look even deeper. In response to the claims and discoveries made by Irish revisionists, the anti- or post-revisionist school of Irish history then emerged, which sought to claim essentially that 1916 was all that it was cracked up to be. This in brief is a snapshot of the historiography of Irish history. What it hopefully demonstrates is that there is multiple ways to interpret what went on in 1916. To me what it shows is that people felt and still do feel passionately and connected enough to 1916 to re-examine it numerous times. To some people, 1916 clearly means too much, while others are accused of thinking of it too little. The rebels of 1916 had no mandate to act. They were a tiny minority within an extreme minority of the Irish Republican Brotherhood. Yet they did act, and we now celebrate their actions in various ways. We venerate them as heroes, we denote their sacrifice and selflessness, their determination to right the wrongs that this country suffered, even while the majority of its populace viewed their actions with an often hostile indifference. Similarly, the extremists in the north of Ireland that bombed shopping centres and killed numerous people in the name of a united Ireland acted without a mandate from the majority, yet what can we do to distinguish these individuals from the men and women that fought for Ireland in 1916? If you celebrate the 1916 rebels, how can you not also celebrate the Northern Ireland iteration of the IRA that we encountered earlier, the provisional IRA, who claimed to act in the names of those rebels and the ideals that those rebels espoused in 1916. 
Some Irish politicians today would claim that you cannot celebrate one or the other, and that you must celebrate both with equal measure. On the 28th of March 2016, a month before this special was incepted, Sinn Féin President Gerry Adams spoke at a gathering of people at a place called Arbor Hill in Dublin's inner city. This was a very different Sinn Féin to the one invoked and alluded to in 1916. This is a point we will elucidate on in further episodes. At Arbor Hill Cemetery, people had gathered to listen to a series of speeches and witness the marking of the centenary of the 1916 Rising. With the Irish tricolour flag captured effectively by the wind, Jerry Adams cut a dramatic profile as he readied himself to speak. He talked for about 20 minutes on a range of topics. He alluded to the heroic defence of the rebels during Easter week 1916, and he also linked the struggle for Irish freedom across the 20th century from 1916 to the era of the Troubles. Then he got to the good stuff. Historical revisionists, Adams claimed, were on a new crusade to blacken the names of the rebels of 1916 and claimed that another way could have been possible for Irish independence. This way of thinking Adams called Redmondism, so called after the leader of the Irish Parliamentary Party, John Redmond, who advocated the ruling of Ireland by Irish people from Dublin in a process that was called Home Rule, but for this version of Ireland to remain within the United Kingdom. Adams then stated that it was total and absolute rubbish and nonsense to believe that either Home Rule would have led to Irish independence in time, or that by fighting alongside Britain in the First World War, Ireland would have achieved greater freedoms in the end. The only way people have ever attained freedom is by taking freedom, Adams said, and that is the lesson of 1916. Adams insisted that 2016 had to be the year where Ireland looked forward to its future and not backwards to its past. Let us be clear, Adams concluded. The reactionaries, the revisionists, the naysayers, the begrudgers, the modern-day Redmondites might pontificate and waffle about how wrong 1916 was. We have a word for that. 1916 was right. The men and women of 1916, of the Rising, were right. It was republic against empire, republicanism versus imperialism, and we know whose side we are on. We stand by, and we stand for, the republic. I hope you're still with us after that. I showed this extract of modern-day Ireland to you because now you will hopefully see what I'm up against. I am against the ideals of men like Gerry Adams who claimed that the Rising was right. I am against the legacy which the provisional IRA that campaigned in the Northern Troubles fought for. I am against the violence and the rhetoric. I am against the sycophantic pandering to long-dead individuals that did not represent the majority of Ireland in 1916. I am against those that would call me a traitor for the simple fact that I hold my own views. Not in my name did the rebels of 1916 act, when they failed to consider the consequences of their actions, when they killed men and women and children who never had to die, or when this country that I love was thereafter subjected to 100 years of violence because of their actions. When families were torn asunder, children murdered by indiscriminate bombs, 
men and women shot for having different views or beliefs. It is my mission in the course of this mini-series to combat the mainstream narrative of 1916. To argue and debate the claims that it had to happen, that it made Ireland better afterwards, or that Ireland without the Rising would never have achieved its current state of independence. I want to use historical facts. I want to gather all that I have learned over the course of my young life to present a different picture for you. I want to balance my own inevitable bias with the fact that this rising did mean a lot and still means a lot to many people. I want to communicate to you that in my opinion the rising was an inherently bad thing but that we can learn from its events and create a better Ireland for today. I want to demonstrate that because it was a historical event you simply cannot pluck 1916 out of the sky and begin examining it as some people do. You have to place it in the context of the era in which it happened, and in order to do that, you have to try and understand that era, as well as what came before it. I want Ireland so badly to move on from its violent past, and continue to make strides in areas that it has already made, in reconciliation, in modernisation, in charity, in acceptance, in understanding. For all the flaws of his speech, at least in my opinion, Jerry Adams was correct when he said that this year we need to look to the future, not the past. But I don't believe that this is possible until we look into that past and accept its rights and wrongs, uncover its truths and dispel its myths. I hope I am capable of performing these tasks and, obviously, I hope that my opinions haven't turned you off already. But if you're still with us, you may be asking yourself, how am I going to go about doing it? That's a fair question, and with a view towards providing you with a rough structure, here's where I see us going. We'll spend a few episodes giving a background to Ireland in the pre-1916 era. This won't be a comprehensive examination of that era's events, we simply don't have time for that, but it will be a detailed enough survey to give you a good grasp of what's going on by 1916, and you will feel informed enough to feel qualified enough to have an opinion on what's going on by the time we get to the more incendiary stuff. That incendiary stuff will take up most of our time, since I really want to unwrap the characters, the issues and the events of 1916 to you in the kind of detail that they deserve. Then we come to the more nitty gritty part, but still an important part of the story. For this you can expect me to focus on the historiographical discourse of the 1916 Rising, which essentially means I'll be looking at what other historians have said about it in the past. In addition to this, I hope to be able to explain to you the major debates regarding that period, as well as where the big divides are and what people normally disagree most about, since that's always fun. To wrap up, we'll examine, in as brief a format as possible, how the Rising impacted the rest of Irish history going forward, Though I will have to restrain myself a bit, or there is a danger of the podcast special going on forever. Then we shall conclude with a prophetic note of some kind, and finish up with a tone that corresponds to my usual quirky style, which I've been told I have. The big issue here is that, especially for my beloved listeners who weren't fortunate enough to be born in Ireland, all of what I will be going through in this special will seem foreign to you. I understand that, and I have no doubt that it will be tough getting to grips with the names and the nuances of certain events, but on the other hand, if you are willing to stick with it, 
I think you'll surprise yourself by how much you can take in and learn from me here. The lessons I'm going to try and impart to you guys of the importance of seeking the truth and uncovering the facts even when those around you scoff at your efforts, those aren't experiences exclusive to Irish history. Historical cover-ups and controversies are a fact of nations across the world, just as surely as people will always try to see things in a different way for different reasons. Imagine another retelling of the American Civil War, for example, or finding a way to emotionally connect you to the War of the Roses, and I guess that is something along the lines of what I'm trying to do here. The end result, I believe, will be worth it, because I will have this new product to offer you guys, and because you'll be armed with an alternative view of Irish history should you ever decide to visit. Imagine how smart you should sound if you ever decide to visit our shores and enter into a glorious debate in one of our many pubs. Just remember to tell them who sent you, and you'll be doing fine. I promise not to take myself too seriously during this mini-series, and above all have fun doing it, despite the content and how personal it can be at times for me, since there's no point doing it otherwise. That being said, any questions about what I go through in any of the episodes, I would be happy to elaborate further on if you would like to get in touch. It goes without saying that a lot of work went into this, but since I don't want to bug you in every episode to support like I normally do, I'll just bother you guys once here. Please support me, because I need your help to invest my time and love into these things, and keep them going. Tell everyone you come across that I've got an exciting new project going. And remember that monetary support is always welcome. wdfpodcast.blogspot.ie And please remember to be fit, and keep doing it if you're doing it. Before we go, I gotta talk about the music. The song at the beginning of the prologue is called Misha Era, or I Am Ireland, and it is by Patrick Cassidy and his niece Sybil. I do not own the rights to it, but I hope they won't sue me if I point you all towards the album that they recently did for the centenary special on RTE, Radio Telefish Aaron, Ireland's state broadcaster. If you enjoyed the style of that intro and you appreciate their work, then check them out. Simply search Patrick Cassidy 1916 in iTunes or Spotify or anything else like that, and enjoy. That album is an absolute cracker, and we may well be borrowing from it for the rest of the miniseries. In the future, when I use their work on this podcast, I will always say so in the description of the episode, so look there if you want to find more information on where to find the album. One more final note. Most of you know by now that a few months ago I got engaged. You might also remember that I mentioned you would be hearing from her sooner than you might expect. Well, with that in mind, I think it's time to talk about that flute player from the introduction music of this miniseries. That, my dear listeners, is Anna on the flute. Say hi to Anna, Mrs. When Diplomacy Fails, and be nice, you guys. Expect other little solos of hers to pop up throughout the miniseries, too, for added effect. Also, I know that people normally only do these kinds of things at the beginning of a book, but I feel like I can make an exception here. This miniseries is dedicated to you, Anna, for always believing in me and pushing me forward even when I didn't think I could continue, even if you never let me work too hard. This is for you, Anna, so I hope you enjoy it. I love you. 
It's going to be quite the journey over the next few weeks, so I hope I will have your interest and your support, as well as your patience. My name is Zach Twomley, and this is the brave, ambitious, and in a sense, reckless new project I've decided to invest when diplomacy fails as time in. So if it all sounds good to you, I hope to have you along for the ride. Thanks! Hold up! What was that? Boring! No flavor! That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 